0: This is a podcast from the Department of War Studies, King's College London. To find out more, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash war studies.
1: Welcome to the War Studies podcast, recorded on the 7th of February 2014. I'm Peter Bush. We have two topics for you today. First, we'll talk about refugee camps in Eastern Sudan and how the refugees there have managed to gain at least some form of autonomy. I talked to Dr. Hélène Thiollet from Sciences Po in Paris about this. And secondly, we'll hear from Dr. Gaurav Campani, who presented his research here in the department on India's operational nuclear capabilities. But first of all, Jane Peake is here to tell us more about next week's events. We have one event on
0: Monday, Yes, that's right. Russia and the Caspian Sea, projecting power or competing for influence. And that will be given by Dr. Tracy German from DSD. It's in the Pyramid Room and it's at quarter past five.
1: And there are three more events on Tuesday.
0: Yes, that's right. The first at one o'clock, battle stations, sea power and Sino-Japanese relations in the East China Sea. That's being given by Alessio Patilano from War Studies in the War Studies meeting room. And also the same day, three o'clock in the War Studies meeting room, Peter Marsden will be talking on Afghanistan post-2014. And that's hosted by the Afghanistan Studies Group. And finally, very important event in the Great Hall, which will be given by the head of the British Army, so General Peter Wall, And he'll be talking on the British Army today and tomorrow. That's at half past six. And you'll need to RSVP for that one because we expect a lot of people.
1: And we're going to live tweet that event as well. Excellent. See you next week.
0: See you next week.
1: Dr. Hélène Thiolet teaches International Relations and Migration Studies at Sciences Po, Paris. Her research focuses on the politics of migration and asylum in the Global South. The department's Research Center in International Relations invited her to talk about her latest project, which is about Eritrean refugee camps in eastern Sudan. Her research challenges the view that refugees in camps are just victims who are trapped in their situation and have no agency. I began our conversation by asking her about the focus of her talk here at King's.
2: The talk I gave was about uh, Eritrean refugee camps in eastern Sudan, and I looked at uh, this particular case study of, um, of a long-lasting uh, asylum crisis, because uh, Eritrean refugees started arriving in Sudan in 1962, and actually the key going to Sudan even though Eritrea became independent in 1991 and supposedly there were no more reasons for them to exit Eritrea uh, under the pressure of the liberation war of uh, Eritrean forces against Ethiopia that was occupying uh, Eritrea. So that's a long (laughs) uh, sentence to just uh, try and and explain how those uh, refugee camps were not only places where refugees were segregated, uh, secluded from the rest of of Sudanese society and uh, basically jailed in those uh, particular spaces, the refugee camps, but actually those camps became um, spaces of um, agency uh, for refugees where they acquired... Um, autonomy uh, from um, notably from the Sudanese government, from uh, the UNHCR as the agent in the institution that was operating and managing uh, uh, humanitarian
1: aid in the region. And this happened over time? You see?
2: This happened over time and the idea was to look at this paradox of refugee camps not as places of encampment and uh, and uh, segregation, but rather as transnational spaces that are providing uh, agency to refugees, that are providing informational capital, that are serving as resources in a transnational uh, space, uh, which is um, uh, where the diaspora moves, uh, the return diaspora moves.
1: Can you give me an idea how big are they? I mean, how many people live there in these camps?
2: Today, um, according to UNHCR, you have approximately uh, between 150,000 and 200,000 people, but that's probably very much underestimated, uh, as a lot of refugees cease to be registered or are not uh, registered um, now in eastern Sudan. But for instance, in 1984, there were a approximately one million Eritreans in eastern Sudan and in in Sudan in general. So some of them were in Khartoum. So one third, a bit less than one third of the Eritrean population was in eastern Sudan at the peak of the guerrilla warfare between Eritrea and Ethiopia.
1: So, And how did it happen that they established these camps as places of agency, autonomy?
2: Well, in fact, the the idea is that um, we usually see the camps, the refugee camps, as uh, detention centers. But when when you look at how refugee camps are built and how they they are integrated into the rural areas in eastern Sudan, uh, they are not closed spaces. They are not uh, enclosed. Uh, they are functioning as uh, Let's say um, labor force reservoir for uh, for agricultural labor. Sometimes they are located very close to a Sudanese village, and eventually, over time, uh, the camps and the camp and the village just merge in a sort of symbiosis. And so, the resources that are channeled for refugees by international organizations are also available for Sudanese, and the Resources of welfare that is offered for you know by the state. I mean the limited welfare that is offered by the Sudanese state to Sudanese population becomes also available for refugees. So you have, uh, across time, you have a sort of transformation of the initial function of the camp that is to separate refugees from the rest of society and to segregate them into something a bit more uh, a bit more complex and basically the camps become. Integrated into uh, into social networks and, and social spaces.
1: That wasn't intentional. So that basically, there just was no border or there was no fence, and then they somehow spread out. Or...
2: It depends. It depends on the camp. I mean, you have various types of camps in Eastern Sudan, and part of the. My work was to make a typology of different camps and the way they evolved, especially the way they evolved after 2002, because in 2002 the UNHCR declared the cessation close, so they ended up the prima facie protection of Eritrean refugees with the idea of phasing out from Eastern Sudan and, and stopping humanitarian assistance and legal protections. And the interesting thing for me is that uh, this phasing out didn't happen. It didn't happen because of the resistance of refugees on the grounds, I mean, in the camps and also in the cities, and uh, the resistance also of Sudanese population and the Sudanese government who wanted to maintain this international presence and international resource that is also benefiting Sudanese population Near, next to the camps in this area.
1: Who is organizing this resistance? So Who is behind that?
2: Uh, when I'm talking about resistance, I'm not necessarily talking about you know, people demonstrating on the streets, but I'm more talking about passive resistance of both refugee population organized by the, mainly by the political parties in exile who are operating, who are present in the camps, um, and uh, the second actor who was instrumental in this passive resistance to the UNHCR phasing out was the Commissioner of Refugee, which is the the part of the Sudanese Ministry of Interior that is managing refugees and asylum seekers in Sudan. So there was a sort of coalition of interest between those two groups of actors, refugees and refugee organizations and political parties on the one hand, and the Commissioner of refugee and the Ministry of Interior and local administration, Sudanese administration, on the other hand. Mm-hmm. And basically the forms of resistance were just administrative resistance to uh, the phasing out of UNHCR. It was the flooding, that is to say the massive participation to refugee status determination, to the registering of, of people uh, within um the UNHCR uh, rosters. Uh, so that was uh, these were really um, the kind of uh, apparently uh, purely politically neutral and administrative practice, but in fact um, it it worked in preventing UNHCR to to stop providing assistance and protection.
1: And uh, maybe a final question: You you also want, I mean, you you know a lot about this specific case but you're trying to make more theoretical claims uh, derived from that. What are they?
2: Well, I'm trying to... um, I'm basically trying to look uh, a bit differently at refugees. Oftentimes, uh, the literature and the discourses on on refugees and asylum seekers objectifies them and put forth the idea that they are victims and therefore need protection and assistance. So there is a there is a preconception of, of uh, refugees are passive, uh, passive objects of public policies of the support you know of the aid of UNHCR or of the policies, for instance, in Europe, uh, who deciding the state deciding who enters who does not. Um, so I'm trying to I'm trying to re you know reallocate this notion of subjectivity through. Uh, the concept of agency, and um, to try and say that refugees have agency, margins to maneuver within a constrained, of course, environment, very constrained, without um, undermining the claim, I mean, the, the political claim for assistance and protection. So the idea is to say, to try and put forth uh, this concept of agency, uh, for uh, to describe refugees' uh, uh, practices and strategies, but without undermining their uh, need for uh, protection and humanitarian assistance. So it's, it's of course it's a theoretical claim, but that of course that is linked to a, a militant uh,
3: claim.
1: Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Dr. Gaurav Kampani is currently guest researcher at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies. His research area includes Indian nuclear policy. His presentation here today, an event jointly organized by the Department of War Studies and the India Institute, investigated the question if India's nuclear posture and use philosophy was undergoing radical transformation.
3: Fifteen years after India stepped out of the nuclear closet, um, there's been a lot of speculation as to what kind of nuclear power India is going to be. And historically the assumption has been that India is a reluctant nuclear weapons power. And um, it has had a recessed posture, meaning um, the the nuclear warheads have been kept separate from the delivery systems and the pits have been removed from the uh, the non-nuclear trigger assembly. uh, But gradually, over a period of time, um, over the last decade, um, India has begun breaking with some of these past institutional practices. And um, uh, India's national security managers have made very clear that they take the demands of uh, nuclear operationalization very, very seriously. And in many ways, um, India's uh, hardware developments in the last decade and organizational changes are retroactive attempts to fill the gap between state and uh, capabilities and actual capabilities on the ground. Um, but anyways, the, the assumption is held, uh, the, the consensus used to be that India was still a, a very responsible, benign, um, low-key, recessed nuclear weapons power. However, the balance of late has shifted to the other end, and now the, uh, uh, an argument is made by several academics and by analysts in the Beltway in Washington um, that India is turning increasingly maximalist in terms of hardware developments. Um, in terms of development of short-range ballistic missiles, uh, multiple re-entry vehicles, warheads, um, ballistic missile defense, these theoretically would give India a splendid first-strike capability against Pakistan. Like
1: the other powers, like the other major
3: Yeah, it's sort of mimicking the behavior of of, of other powers. And actually, Scott Sagan from Stanford um, uh, describes it as a form of social isomorphism, uh, whereby it's sort of mimicry, if you will. Um, and then the the other aspect is that uh, as India migrates towards a sea-based arsenal um, um, with an SSB and uh, nuclear submarine capability and sea uh, ballistic missiles, uh, you really can't have a, um, a, a demated arsenal where the, weapon, where the warheads are kept separate from the, from the missiles. So um, um, the assumption, again, is that India is moving towards higher operational readiness, and many of these practices from the sea will migrate to the land-based systems. In fact, an argument already is made Um, That um, that the land-based missiles already have warheads mated onto them, and that they are now being containerized, meaning being placed in sealed uh, containers. And once missiles are placed in sealed containers, it's not possible to um, remove or demate the warhead in peacetime.
1: But you are going to challenge this particular yes, argument. Yes, yes,
3: yes. I, I challenge all all, um, all, the, all, all these positions. I, I think the data are far more conflicted. Um, and then finally, um, the argument is that India historically has had a no-first-use and an unblemished, unmitigated, no-first-used doctrine. And over the years, um, um, you know, uh, two clarifications have been issued by the Indian government whereby they've caveated this no-first-use doctrine. And uh, a whole bunch of private statements from Indian military leaders According to some analysts, suggests that India has diluted its no first use doctrine, and in certain circumstances would be willing to use nuclear we- would be willing to go uh, would be willing to uh, engage in the first use of nuclear weapons, which they find very alarming. So again, um, the argument being that India is mimicking the practice of the United States in the former Soviet Union. Um, and it's, it's, it's turning just as another another variety of the P5. There's nothing special about India or recessed or responsible about India. And we should be very concerned because this has very negative implications for um, deterrence instability, crisis instability, and arms race to, you know, instability in, mm-hmm. in South Asia and the Asia-Pacific. Okay.
1: And you are saying we shouldn't be concerned because no. the data is saying something. Yes, and,
3: and my argument essentially is that... Um, That um, analyst, uh, this is what I call a trend towards neo-alarmism. And uh, and there are really two ways of looking at it. One is that, you know, uh, India is moving towards an operational posture and um, the fundamental nuclear reality with which India approaches nuclear weapons has changed. There's no question about that. But however, uh, uh, the data are far more nuanced. And it is, I, I would make the argument that in the social sciences, one can find strands of data to support any argument you want. And I think it's important to read the data holistically. And it's important to read the, you know, the devil lies in the details. And it's important to look at the details and contextualize the data in India's institutional context. And once you do that, I think the picture has far less along.
1: So, for example, to have sea-based so, capability so, is what, what? What
3: is this about? So, so for example, I mean, let's begin with the hardware, but very simply. I mean, the short-range ballistic missiles. One of the concerns is that India is developing short-range ballistic missiles, which will um, it can arm its short-range ballistic missiles with and cruise missiles with nuclear warheads. The problem essentially is that the new uh, systems that are under development have a very small payload capacity in comparison to what to the warheads that India already has, and uh, and if India. To be able to arm these ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads, you would need to miniaturize them, which means hot tests. Um, It's not really possible. I I don't think there's data to suggest that it is possible for India to design a new generation of nuclear warheads to arm these missiles without hot tests. So if you can't do that, there are huge reliability concerns. The second is MIRVing capability. India has announced that it's developing multiple reentry vehicles for its intermediate range ballistic missiles. Now, this isn't the case of China. Intermediate-range ballistic missiles means over 5,000 kilometers in range. Um, The concern is that India could arm its short-range ballistic missiles, uh, vis-à-vis Pakistan, with the same kinds of uh, uh, multiple re-entry vehicles, which would then uh, theoretically give India the capacity to take out the Pakistani arsenal in a first strike. Uh, The problem, again, is that the payloads that, um, for example, the intermediate-range ballistic missiles have a payload capacity of three tons. Each warhead is about a tonne. They weigh about 60 to 70 tons. The short-range ballistic missiles that India has barely have a payload capacity of one ton. So you simply... And they weigh about 15 to 20 tons. You simply can graft the payload from these longer-range systems onto the shorter-range systems. You have to completely rebuild your missile from scratch. You can do that theoretically. But um, India's ballistic missiles has a huge reliability problems already. There's twenty twenty five percent failure rate. So basically, the argument being that it's not easy to simply graft systems from one um, from one set of missiles to another. Finally, the uh, the concern of the hardware is that um, India is developing um, a ballistic missile defense. So in theory, you could carry out a first strike and then sit tight, um, destroy eighty percent of your adversaries, arsenal, and then, you know, take out the rest with a ballistic missile defense. And India has pursued this capacity for about a decade now. And it has declared one part... It's a, it's, a, it's a two-tiered program. And one part has been tested, very limited testing, but India's civilian defense research development agency says it works ninety with 99% accuracy, which in theory is very disturbing. But once you actually start looking at the details of the tests, you realize that they're rigged, they've not been tested under realistic conditions, and nobody in the Indian military or the government really buys its civilian defence agency's point of view. So I don't think these weapons are turning operational anytime soon. So, I mean, we need to take all these claims with a big a tablespoon of salt. The, the, the second aspect is higher operational readiness. And, yes, India is moving towards higher operational readiness, but not during peacetime. Um, you know, um, as India developed its arsenal in the 1990s, it, it was in the, sort of in the nuclear closet. Uh, the program was hidden from you. And one of the reasons why um, 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 operational readiness was so low was because the Indians were very concerned their arsenal would be found out by the United States, and that would invite uh, debilitating economic and technological sanctions in India. So this was the reason why operational readiness at, one, you know, at that stage was so low. And over over the period of last decade, in the two crises that India's had with in Pakistan, the nineteen uh, ninety nine Kargil war, and then the two thousand and one two thousand and two um, um, standoff with Pakistan, the Indians realized that uh, it's one thing to have um, a demated arsenal, and but to be able to put it together during a crisis and war is quite another thing. It's a huge logistical task, and it takes a lot lot more time. So, for example, in the nineteen nineties, uh, the, s- the scientists who did some of the planning calculated it would take India about. 72 hours to be able to launch a retaliatory attack after absorbing the nuclear strike. During the Kargil War, it took nearly a week for them to simply assemble the weapon. And and it took about nearly a month for the Air Force to achieve operational readiness. So during the crisis, uh, India's Strategic Forces Command, the new entity that's been formed to actually manage nuclear operations, realizes that um, uh, India might simply be caught flat-footed and... um, it could survive probably, it could launch a retaliatory attack in the event of a limited strike, but if there was a well-placed attack on certain command control centers and urban centers, the social and urban chaos would basically overwhelm India's transport and communications networks. So they've rejiggered the, the procedures and now... Um, um, uh, the arsenal, the weapons will be assembled at the, starting with conventional mobilization. So you're
1: basically saying that it's almost a defensive method.
3: Right? Sort of, yes. That you know that I mean. So that so, so basically the kind of re um, um, balancing between what is a demated arsenal and you know some modicum of operational readiness during during, uh, and, uh, during an emergency and during wartime. So uh, um, the the argument again is that uh, uh, that once India's um, Ballistics, a sea bay, once India deploys ballistic missiles in sea, um, the, the weapons will have to be mated, which is true. But India's SSBN capability is at least a decade away. Uh, the current system is only undergoing sea trials. The ballistic missiles have not been tested. It's more of a technology demonstrator. The Chinese never sent their submarine out of port. So I'm not saying it can't happen. It might happen. But again, when it happens, we shall have to see. The other thing is the, the critics argue that uh, we don't know anything about India's permissive action links and we don't know anything about its um, personal reliability programs. But we don't have evidence for that, so the absence of evidence is not abs- is not evidence of a weak link. I mean, we need to wait for the data to come out instead of making these speculations. Um, and then the argument is that India's already canisterized its land-based ballistic missile force. This is not true. There is no evidence. And even if the, the warheads were mated, uh, the concern would be great if the missiles were on constant patrol and alert. That's not the case again. So I think the, the concerns are overrated. The final... Issues that um, India's doctrine um, uh, has been diluted. The no first use aspect has been diluted. In 1999, um, India issued its draft nuclear doctrine, where it said it would uh, it ruled out nuclear attacks against nuclear uh, against non-nuclear adversaries, but said that it would not, you know, it it was fair game in the case of a nuclear adversary and non-nuclear weapon states aligned to a nuclear weapons power. And then in uh, 2003, India, the India's cabinet issued a subsequent clarification, where it once again reiterated unmitigatedly um, the, no first use, but said uh, nuclear weapons used as fair game against biological, chemical weapons attacks. Now the question is, neither Pakistan or China actually has biological or chemical weapons. They've signed the BWC, the Biological Weapons Convention, and the Chemical Weapons Convention. So I don't see what's the context of use. The other aspect is, in the case of Pakistan, uh, the Pakistanis claim that they don 't believe the Indians in any way, which is if that 's the case, and the Pakistanis always have insisted they will use nuclear weapons first, so any changes in india 's doctrine i don 't see what impact does it have on Pakistan either way um, you know if, if you already if Pakistan are, already has a first use doctrine and never believes the Indians all along it doesn 't matter to me, but that said i don 't think the Indians have given up nuclear no first use. The more startling concern is that uh, senior figures in the Indian military have said that. Um, uh, first use with nuclear weapons is out of the question, but first use using precision conventional means um, against Pakistani nuclear assets is fair game. Now, that, again, raises enormous concerns for uh, uh, crisis instability. Use them or lose them syndrome, because you know the other side would have to think about quickly using its nuclear weapons before losing them in battle. The problem, once again, is that India's strategic forces, India's conventional war planning and its, and its nuclear war planning are completely compartmentalized. So the Strategic Forces Command that manages nuclear forces has no lateral linkages with the conventional military. So it, unless you have coordinated joint planning, I don't see how this can be done. Uh, and so again, I think... Uh, and then again, if you're looking at... Uh, and I think the best way of looking at how India might respond in a crisis is, by, is we're looking at the behaviour of Indian political leaders. And we have data from, from the last decade, three crises, uh, the Kargil War, India did not whiten the war, 2001, two military stand-up with Pakistan, uh, India did not um, go to war with Pakistan, and then you had the Mumbai attacks, uh, the terrorist attacks. India did not initiate a military action against Pakistan, so regardless of what is being said, I think if you compare it to the, if you compare it to actual data from at least two governments one is hindu right wing bjP government, and then the left of the center uh, national democratic front government. you actually see data that's very consistent with um, uh, you know relatively benign, benign Behavior. So, for all these reasons, I don't feel as concerned as as the who I call the nuclear alarmists. Thank you. That's reassuring.
1: And people are already waiting. The talk is about to start. Thanks a lot. You're very welcome. This was the War Studies podcast recorded on the 7th of February 2014. I'm Peter Bush. Thanks for listening.